Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mooring. We are your co-hosts, Jason Crawford and Mona Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Today's episode takes a close look at the potential FCA risk associated with non-compliance with cybersecurity requirements. Our guests today are David Robbins and Kate Crowley. David is a partner and a member of the steering committee of the firm's government contracts group and is a co-leader of the firm's FCA practice. He regularly conducts internal investigations, defends FCA cases, and provides compliance advice to contractors of all sizes. Kate Crowley is counsel in Kroll's DC office and is a member of the steering committee for the firm's privacy and cybersecurity group. Her practice covers a wide range of information security counseling and litigation engagements, including cybersecurity compliance and incident response. Welcome to you both. Yes, welcome David and Kate. We're glad to have you here today to talk about False Claims Act risks that can arise from non-compliance with cybersecurity requirements. This is a topic that is front and center in light of the recent settlement in an FCA case in the Western District of New York. David, can you set the stage for us by describing the settlement in USXREL Glenn v. Cisco Systems? Sure, Mona. I'm happy to do that. And thank you both for inviting me here. I've been a big fan of this podcast. You do things a little differently than we do on the fastest five minutes. And I'm just delighted to be able to be on here after having listened to you for a long time. So your question is about this particular case. And the allegations arose from Cisco's development of a video surveillance system that allowed customers to manage multiple surveillance cameras through a single server. The relator was a cybersecurity specialist who worked for one of Cisco's resellers, and he discovered an alleged security weakness that could permit a cyber intruder to obtain administrative access to the software used to manage the video feeds. Now, the company makes clear that there was no evidence that the flaws were actually exploited in its many pronunciations on this case. That said, Cisco had sold video surveillance systems to state and federal agencies, and the relator alleged that Cisco violated the FCA by failing to inform government agencies that the software did not comply with the standards imposed by Federal Information Security Management Act, or FISMA, and that by providing a product that was worthless due to the alleged security flaws in the software. The suit remained under seal for years before it was unsealed this summer in connection with the settlement in which Cisco Systems agreed to pay $8.6 million and which resulted in Mr. Glenn receiving a relator share of $1.7 million. Thanks, David. And that settlement is, to our knowledge, the first time that a cybersecurity-related KETAM has resulted in a settlement or a judgment, but it may be a harbinger of what's to come because of the growing number of cybersecurity requirements imposed on companies that do business with the federal government. It's worth noting that in the aftermath of the OPM data breach, which was one of the largest breaches of government data in the history of the U.S., many civilian agencies are now including contract clauses that are intended to safeguard personally identifiable information. However, it's the FAR and DFARS safeguarding clauses that have received the most attention. Kate, can you give us an overview of those clauses? Sure, and thank you again to both you, Jason, and Mana. This is my debut on Kroll and Mooring's podcast series, so I am honored to be here. So let's start with the FAR basic safeguarding rule. It imposes 17 security controls that are selected from a cybersecurity standard called the NIST, that's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Special Publication 800-171. And these are the security controls that the government believes are the minimum requirements that contractors should implement on their networks to protect federal contract information. And these security requirements include things like ensuring that only authorized users can access the contractor's information system. They need to ensure that sensitive information isn't posted or processed publicly. 
and also update antivirus and other malware protection tools when those new releases are available. But for the Department of Defense, they've recognized that there's a special importance for protecting their information. And so through the DFARS safeguarding rule, they've taken these cybersecurity requirements even further. Specifically, this DFARS clause requires contractors to provide, quote, adequate security on their information systems. And here they need to do so by implementing the entirety of NIST Special Publication 800 and that contains more than 100 separate cybersecurity requirements. There's also an option to implement a pre-approved equivalent standard, something other than NIST, but it's typically not something we see a lot in industry. Thanks, Kate. When the DFAR safeguarding rule was published in its current form in October 2016, it required contractors to implement NIST SP 800-171 as soon as practical, but no later than December 31st, 2017. Now that the 2017 deadline has come and passed, are most contractors able to certify that they are fully compliant? So it's a great question, Mana, and a tough one to answer. Currently, there really are large segments of industry that are still struggling with compliance with the DFAR safeguarding rule. And making things more complicated, prior to a December 31st, 2017 deadline, Mana, that you just mentioned, the DOD actually backpedaled a bit regarding contractor compliance with that full suite of those NIST controls. At that point, the DOD clarified that implementation, which is the word in the clause that is actually required of this NIST standard, that could be done through the completion of two documents known as a system security plan, or an SSP, and a plan of action and milestones, or a POAM. So contractors could document in their SSP what security controls they had completed and then document in their POAMs what controls still needed work. Combined, these two documents would be sufficient to have shown that you had, quote, implemented 800-171 by the clauses deadline. Even, and this is important, you could do so even if some security controls remained outstanding on that date. And lastly, the DOD is working to develop a formal cyber certification process but contractors are currently left to independently interpret these NIST controls and then self-certify their implementation. Thanks, Kate. Certainly any time a government contractor makes an express certification or falls out of compliance with a legal requirement, the contractor needs to be mindful of potential FCA exposure. David, these cybersecurity-related KETAMs are just now starting to be unsealed in courts across the country. Can you describe how relators are framing their allegations? Yeah, I'd be happy to. But just first, I'll note that I started my government contracts career on the business side as a contractor for, you guessed it, NIST. And that was before anybody knew what NIST was and what the agency did. Now it gets a lot more cachet. But back then, you'd say what NIST, and they had no idea what you were talking about. Anyway, to your question. So far, the FCA suits alleging cybersecurity noncompliance have been brought under the fraudulent inducement theory of liability or the implied certification theory of liability. In fraudulent inducement cases, as the name suggests, the theory is that the defendant made a knowingly false promise in order to mislead the government into entering into a contract. As the listeners know, after the Supreme Court's holding in Escobar, the implied certification theory of liability is now recognized in all courts. And under this theory, a contractor can face liability if the contractor bills the government with knowledge that the contractor is out of compliance with a statutory regulatory or contractual requirement that is material to the government's decision to pay a claim. Even though Escobar validated the implied certification theory, the court limited its reach by requiring the rigorous application of the FCA's materiality standard, 
If compliance with a particular requirement is not material to payment, it cannot be the basis of an FCA violation. And it seems like the materiality element is where the rubber is going to meet the road in these cases alleging cybersecurity noncompliance, uh, because courts are going to be asked to determine whether compliance with a particular cybersecurity requirement was material to payment. But ultimately, that's going to be a fact-dependent analysis that depends, at least in part, on the nature of the goods or services that the contractor is providing. Yeah, I would agree, Jason. And from a technical perspective, it's worth noting there can be divergent views as to what is actually required under these NIST security controls. And in so many situations, there is not going to be a black and white rule to determine if a contractor is in compliance with either the FAR or the DFARS clauses. And further complicating the analysis is that prior versions of the DFARS clause required immediate compliance without the safe harbors of using an SSP or a POAM. And just about everyone in industry was struggling with the required speed of that implementation. And now even today, there is widespread concern that many contractors are falling short of the security controls that are outlined in the NIST 800-171 standard, and yet contractors continue to receive awards of contracts that contain that clause. Well, and that's sort of a big deal here for anyone defending an action like this, right? So evidence that companies are still receiving contracts, even when not in full compliance with the FAR or DFARS clauses, is going to be critical for those companies defending one of these suits. In Escobar, the Supreme Court said that one of the ways in which courts can determine if compliance with a requirement is material to payment is to look and see if the government consistently refuses to pay claims in the mine run of cases where there is noncompliance. On the contrary, if the government routinely pays claims, even in the face of noncompliance, that can be considered strong evidence that compliance is not material to payment. So here, and at least for now, it sounds like defendants may be able to establish a record of the government paying contractors, even when those contractors are not fully compliant with the FAR or the DFARS clauses. We know that many contractors are loath to communicate noncompliance. At least in these sorts of scenarios, though, contractors may want to rethink that approach. And as always, it's our hope that none of our listeners will find themselves defending one of these cases. But to that end, Kate and David, can you share some steps that contractors can take to mitigate against the risk of an FCA action based on noncompliance with cybersecurity requirements? A first step is to document your compliance efforts. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to cybersecurity, and so a company really must document its good-faith efforts to meet the relevant requirements. On this point, contractors should consider having written plans and policies, such as that system security plan that's setting forth how the company reasonably believes it has deployed the safeguarding requirements, having written policies and procedures, including an incident response plan, and then training records to back all of that up will also help demonstrate the contractor's efforts at compliance, which could prove to be important evidence if a contractor finds itself defending against an FCA action. And another one is just to listen to internal concerns. Most of the cybersecurity FCA cases that have been unsealed to date were filed by IT managers, computer security experts, or cybersecurity auditors. This is no surprise considering that these professionals are often in the best position to assess and understand a contractor's security weaknesses. And this trend underscores the importance of listening to internal concerns, addressing security gaps, and making clear to employees that the company understands its contractual obligations by way of compliance with the NIST standards. And it's worth noting that the pool of potential KETAM relators is not limited to a company's current and former employees. For instance, a white hat security expert or an enterprising hacker could potentially discover a flaw in a government contractor's cyber defenses and try to capitalize on it by filing a KETAM action. 
That's right. And another final step is to implement proactive compliance. Because cybersecurity standards are constantly evolving, contractors should really consider an internal monitoring and auditing system that identifies gaps and then provides continuous feedback that the contractor can then use to implement improvements. And where a contractor falls short of the relevant cyber standards, they may want to consider disclosing shortcomings to the contracting officer or seeking an exception from the DOD. And what Kate is saying here is a really key point, because even if a cyber intruder is able to exploit a weakness, a robust internal monitoring program can be important evidence that a contractor did not act with the level of knowledge needed to establish FCA liability. In other words, the contractor did not act with deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard as to its cybersecurity noncompliance. And disclosing shortcomings may be the right move in some circumstances, because if the government is aware that a contractor is not fully compliant with the required controls, but still pays the contractor, it will be more difficult for an FCA plaintiff to meet the burden of establishing that compliance was material to payment. Thank you. Those are some great takeaway points. That's all for this episode. We want to thank David and Kate for joining us today to discuss False Claims Act risk associated with cybersecurity noncompliance. If listeners have any follow-up questions on these topics, they should feel free to reach out to any of us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. 